0: Following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Thank you. Please turn to Mark chapter 15. It's page number 852. If you're using one of the Bibles there in the seat in front of you, we're going to be reading pages. 16 pages, verses 16 to 41, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer this morning. I'll give you just a moment to get there. If you will, please look at verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father father, There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome, When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, please please help us to do justice to this moment in the life of our Lord. For many of us in this room, this has been true so many times before in Mark's gospel, it almost feels like a trite statement at, at times now. But for so many of us in this room, these events are so familiar to us that they have lost all of their significance. We have, we have become blinded to what is happening here, both historically in the scene and then even spiritually as to what is transpiring beneath pages of history. And so I pray that between today's message and these next three, really these next five messages that we're going to be looking at here up until Easter, please, Spirit, open our eyes to see this fresh and anew, to understand it in a way perhaps that we have forgotten, to remind us of what has been sacrificed to purchase our redemption and to call us to not live for ourselves, but to live for that eternal plan that you are executing here in this moment. And so we give ourselves to you, give these messages to you. May they accurately and honestly reflect your intention here, Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. I want, to get, I want to begin this morning by showing you some pictures that, um, they're not funny in any way, and at first you may be confused why I'm showing them to you, and on a couple of them you may even be tempted to chuckle. Um, I'm going to ask you not to. All right? not again, they're not really funny, so I don't think it'll be a big problem. I, I just want you to look at them, think about them for a moment, because what I want to do at the end is to make a point that is not funny at all, in fact it will be very deadly serious. Picture number one is of the most expensive cross shaped necklace sold by Jared's, the the jewelry store. It is, uh, as you can see here, two carats of diamonds, a set in 14 karat gold. It comes in at a total price tag of just under $3,000. Picture number two is of a set of 16 cross shaped crayons that are being sold on Etsy for $12.80. Picture number three is of a set of 25 cross-shaped lollipops also being sold on Etsy for $50. Now, here's the point that I want to make. If we showed these pictures, any of these pictures, to any of the individuals who we have been reading about here in Mark's gospel, they would be dumbfounded to think that we would make any of these items in the shapes of crosses. And, and I'll show you why with another set of pictures that, again, are not intended to be funny, so please do not laugh at them. At the same time, they're not intended to offend you either, because some of you might go that route with it, so please don't get angry. Just look at them and let the reality of the picture sort of set in your mind for a moment. Picture number one is of a guillotine necklace with Jesus's head in the basket. I would like, and I'm not going to, why did any of you react right there? But that's a whole other question. Picture number two is of a necklace depicting Jesus strapped to a hospital gurney about to receive lethal injection. And picture number three is one that I have referenced in the past but have never showed you, is a picture showing Jesus sitting in an electric chair. Now, I can't tell if the person who is making these, uh, these items is doing it to make fun of Jesus or of Christianity or of us as Christians in general, or if they're simply attempting to make the same point that I am trying to make this morning. You see, in the same way that you and I might look at some of these pictures and kind of be bothered by this image of Jesus sitting in an electric chair and why would we wear that around our necks? Imagine how a first-century believer would react if they saw you walk into a room wearing this. See, for them, it would be no different. For them, the cross is, a, is a, a device of execution, just like the electric chair is for us. In fact, it is a far, far more brutal form of execution than any of us have ever known in our lifetime. And I think that for the earliest believers, while they certainly gloried in the cross of Christ, they would have never in a million years imagined glorying in it like like this. Today we're beginning a three-week study of the torture and execution of Jesus uh, here in Mark's gospel. This is the fourth scene now in these five scenes here in chapters 14 and 15 that I told you we'd be covering over uh, these weeks, uh, and we have been working through them pretty steadily. This is the section of Jesus on the cross, and as we begin today, I was just reflecting on the fact that we have spent almost, almost three years now walking with Jesus down these dusty roads of Galilee. We have have sat in houses with him. We have sat by seashores with him. We've listened. We've watched. We've interacted all over this long period of time, but folks, there is a very real sense in which All of that has been bringing us now to this moment. This piece of real estate that began right after the sentencing of Jesus there in the trial phase, and that will end uh, at his empty tomb on Easter morning, this is the pinnacle of Mark's gospel. And, And as we're working through this, I I have several concurrent goals. It's going to take us five Sundays in total to cover that that little piece of real estate there. I have several concurrent goals for these five Sundays. First, in line with what I have tried to do all throughout our study of Mark, one of my major goals is to try to to help you see this and understand this in a way that perhaps you never have or in a way that perhaps you have forgotten about because of how familiar you've become with it. Um, However, though... Unlike the rest of Mark, the brutality in this section is of such a nature that it's, it's unlike anything we've seen. And I want you to kind of hear my heart and why I'm, I've chosen to do some of the things I'm, I'm doing here, both particularly this week and next. My goal is not to sensationalize brutality. My goal is not to make glorious something that is ugly. But at the same time, I don't want to underplay it either. I don't want to pretend that it's better than it was or clean it up for you either. There's a sense in which you should be bothered. There's a sense in which it should disturb you to understand thoroughly what is happening with Jesus in these scenes, and so we want to address that. Second, I want to do the best I can to let Mark be Mark. And what I mean by that is that it is very tempting for me as we work through this uh, scene to bring in a lot of information from from the other Gospels to help fill in the picture of what's going on here, because Mark, quite frankly, just doesn't include a lot of details. He he includes some, but there's a lot others that he just leaves out. And so at first, I was like, well, maybe we should go and pull all that stuff in so we get this really big picture understanding. And I'm like, no, that's not really fair. Mark has made choices as to what he would include and what he wouldn't. And he's done that for reasons that are uniquely his. He's trying to communicate certain things. And so to the extent possible, we need to let Mark communicate what it is that Mark wants to communicate, to show us the point that he wants us to see. And so we will bring in a detail or two every now and then, but generally speaking, we're going to let Mark tell us the story the way that Mark wanted it told. Third, I'm going to try along the way to recognize that as I said, I think in my prayer, beneath all of the historical realities that are are present here, you know, all the details that we're going to be looking at, that underneath all of that is a whole nother level, a spiritual level of truths that are laid out very clearly throughout the rest of the New Testament. And so we don't want to get so enamored with the historical details of the event that we miss the spiritual significance that is intended to be applied to us. And then finally... Uh, fourthly, I'm going to try to make this personal. Because you, you can't just be a casual observer. You can't just sit back and watch this as if it's a movie, because it's not. It's, it's real. It's real, and, and our entire faith is based on what is transpiring here in these moments. And so you can either accept it or you can reject it, but you simply can't ignore it. You've got you to do something with it. It demands some kind of personal Response And so with those goals laid out, and that will apply all the way through Easter, um, with those goals laid out, let's begin very methodically working through Mark's account of the torture and execution of Jesus. Now, even though we started reading this morning in verse 16, I actually want to begin today by going back into the last verse of the trial section that we finished last week, and that is here in Mark chapter 15, verse 15. Mark concluded the story of Jesus's trials with this statement. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This statement was the conclusion of the trial scene, but it is also the introduction to this period of torture and execution. And you see this with Mark's passing reference here to the scourging of Jesus. He says it in such a nonchalant way that if you didn't know better, you might be tempted to just ignore it as kind of being an unimportant detail. Um, Clearly, though, it's not an unimportant detail, and we know that it's not an unimportant detail simply by the fact that he does record it. Things that he doesn't want recorded, he just leaves out. And so if he's put it here is for a reason. And I think that the reason that he doesn't dwell on it at all or explain it in any detail is because for his original readers, for the original hearers of Mark's gospel, to to simply mention the, mention the scourging of Jesus would have been more than sufficient. They were thoroughly familiar with everything that scourging entailed, and so they didn't need to explain it. He didn't need to, to show them what it meant, but for us as modern readers who are completely unfamiliar with the practice of scourging, You know, we're we're left somewhat clueless. And so to help you understand this and really to understand everything that's going on in in what's happening to Jesus right now, let me give you a very brief, high-level overview of Roman justice that I will whittle back to this point here in just a moment. In the Roman world, there are basically two types of people. If I could broad brush and oversimplify dramatically, Basically, two types of Roman people from a justice perspective. There are citizens of Rome, and then there's everybody else. Okay, So you're either a citizen or you're not. Uh, if you are a citizen of Rome, then you have rights. For example, you see this twice in the book of Acts with the Apostle Paul. Uh, The first time you see it is in Acts 16, which is the story of Paul and Silas in the city of Philippi. If you'll remember that story, they'd gone to Philippi, they began preaching the gospel to the Philippians, and everything was going fine until they ran into this slave girl who was demon-possessed and was being used by her masters to to fortune-telling so they could make a profit. Well, they cast the demon out of her, and when the, the masters of this girl realized that their ability to make money on her is gone now, they get angry, and so they incite a riot uh, against Paul and Silas, saying that they are attacking their Roman values, because, of course, Roman values are all about demon possession. But anyway, they're attacking their Roman values. Uh, the crowd begins to beat them. And here's the important detail at that moment. The magistrates of the town, the, the Roman officials who were in charge of, of representing the Roman government there, they join in, and they begin to cane Paul and Silas, beat them with rods. They beat them, put them in prison. Next morning, the magistrates decide to let Paul and Silas go. That was sufficient, so they send the police to let them out of jail. However, Paul refuses to believe because or refuses to leave, saying to them that since they beat a Roman citizen for a crime without any justification, he was uncondemned. They can't just send him out quietly now, so they have to come and personally let him go. And we're going to just read their response in Acts sixteen thirty-eight. The the police reported these words to the magistrates that Paul and Silas are Roman citizens, and what's the response? They were afraid. They're afraid now when they heard that they were Roman citizens, so they came and apologized to them and took them out and asked them to leave the city. All of a sudden, there's a complete change of response. You see another example, a far better one and more pointed to what we're looking at right now in Mark, in Acts chapter 22. Uh, Here, Paul has been preaching to the, to the Jews. He's in Roman custody because another riot almost broke out. Paul's not, he gets this thing with riots. Anyway, another riot's almost broken out. And so he's in Roman custody. He's been preaching to the Jews and they've been listening to him up to a point. But in verse 22, we'll pick up the story. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then when he finished his little speech here, they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth. For he should not be allowed to live. And as they're shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune, who is the Roman official in charge in the scene, the tribune ordered him, Paul, to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging. Now, flogging is another word for scourging. Okay, So it's the same thing that Jesus is enduring here. They're going to examine Paul by scourging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion, this is the soldier in charge who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog or scourge a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went back to the tribune and he says to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune now personally involves himself. He comes and he says to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Paul says, Yes. Tribune answers, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul says, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was, notice again, afraid. For he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen, that he had had bound him. Now what do you notice from both of these examples? As soon as both groups of Roman officials, the magistrates in the one story, the tribune in the other, as soon as both groups learn that Paul is a citizen of Rome, instantly they are afraid because of what they've done to him. The magistrates had had caned him uncondemned. He hadn't been uh, convicted by a judge. There was no order to give them the right to do this. They had done this uncondemned. The second group was afraid simply because they had bound him with chains. That's all they had done was chained him up and got ready to, to, to flog him, but they hadn't done it yet. Instantly, they're afraid. As soon as they hear about this, they back off. This is because, as a Roman citizen, you have rights. You have real rights. You have legal rights. You have a right to a fair hearing, to due process. Uh, you have personal rights. You're supposed to be treated in a certain way, especially, especially for Paul as a natural-born citizen of Rome, uh, you even have reprisal rights, if I can refer to them in this way. If you are mistreated by a Roman official, you can report it and expect that action will be taken. Now you understand why both the magistrates and the tribune are afraid, because they don't know what Paul's going to do. So Rome treated its citizens in certain ways, and you can see examples of that, two specific examples in the book of Acts with Paul. However... <laughs> For the other group, for everybody else who is not a citizen of Rome, it is equally important that you understand they have no rights. They are nothing. They have no expectations of a fair trial, of due process. They have no expectations of fair sentencing, of prescribed punishments. Anything at all, and I do mean anything, can be done to them. And, and whoever does it is completely free. And Jesus clearly falls into this second camp. He is not a citizen. He's just a, a Jewish peasant who has been brought before Pilate, the Roman official, who can do whatever he wants to him, uh, which means he's completely at the whim of Pilate. Completely. Whatever Pilate says is what goes. Jesus is nothing to, to Rome. And this matters as you begin to think about the scourging of Jesus because it will explain to you some of the over-the-top treatment that he is going to receive over the course of these next few hours. I mean, it's bad enough, folks, to be crucified. You'll understand that more next week. But to be scourged and crucified and, and all the other stuff that happens, it's far worse. Let's, let's talk briefly about why. What exactly is scourging or flogging? Well, first it's important that you understand what it's not. Scourging is not whipping. Now, I know in Acts 22, they say they stretch Paul out for the whips, but when you think of whip, you probably think of something like this, right? Kind of Indiana Jones, a, a long leather rope attached to a handle with a, a single tassel attached to the end. I mean, if you were getting whipped with something like this, it would, it would hurt. It would, be, it would be terrible, but, but this isn't what the Romans use when they scourge someone. No, they use something more like this. This is called a flagrum or a flagellum, not that the words necessarily matter, but just to help you understand what's going on here. Uh, this is the Latin word that flogging comes from, flagrum, flogging. You can hear the connection in those words. And you'll notice a number of differences right off the bat between The whip I showed you at first, what we think of when we think of a whip, and and a flagrum. For starters, uh, rather than being a really long device, a long rope, a flagrum contained a very short piece of rope. It it wasn't designed for the the person inflicting it to stand back six, eight, ten feet to administer this. You're in close. You're you're right on top of the person to do this. Uh, Rather than having a single tassel at the end, it would divide from anywhere to three to nine tassels. It just depended on how that one had been made. Uh, some of you may have heard of something called a cat of nine tails. Uh, if you've ever studied the crucifixion of Jesus before, that was a way of referring to a nine-tasseled flagrum, a flagrum that broke out from the nine. More generally, people referred to them as scorpions, but you can kind of begin to understand why. That's because uh, at the end of each tassel, or at multiple points along each tassel, there are little bits of bone, uh, iron, lead, most of the time sharpened, and sometimes in hook shape that have been attached to them. Um, Here's an example someone made of the concept. You'll see this one has three tassels, and on each tassel they've put these little two little metal balls at the end, so they didn't sharpen there, so this is not exactly accurate, but at least gives you an idea of of what this thing was. And the purpose of these little attachments was not to inflict pain per se. In other words, it's not just to hit them with something harder than, than the leather rope. The reason they were sharpened, the reason they had those little hooks on them was because they were intended to embed themselves into the flesh of the person being whipped with it. So, so, in the movie um, *The Passion of the Christ*, Mel Gibson attempted, and, and I don't have a strong opinion about this movie, so I'm using it because it's the most current and probably the best example I could find. He he tried to recreate the scourging of Jesus, and he did an okay job. It, it began normally by chaining the victim to a post. Okay, you saw that even in Acts 22, right? They're they're stretching Paul out for the whips, and this is exactly what would have been a normal practice. And so, you chain the victim. To the the post, so you could keep their back and their buttocks and their legs exposed to the scourger. There are two big historical inaccuracies in this picture. Number one, Jesus is white. I don't know why Gibson went through all this trouble to make this movie as, as accurate as possible and then chooses a white man to play Jesus. But besides that, the other big inaccuracy here is that Jesus would have been naked. They would have completely exposed the person. So there is nothing that is protecting you from the scourger. As the scourging begins, the scourger would strike the victim with the flagellum. And unlike a whip, you know, you think about whipping. If you whip, the goal is to at the last second pull back fast so you get the snap. It's not how flogging worked. In flogging, you hit, and I chose this scene on purpose, and then you make sure that the, the piece is in So you might pause, tug, and then rip. See, the goal here is to tear off ribbons of flesh with each blow. That's what those bits of bone and metal are doing, to just keep tearing and tearing and tearing, and obviously there's no need to be overly careful with this process, especially if the person being flogged is not a Roman citizen. If it's just a, anybody else like Jesus would have been, you can do pretty much whatever you want if you hit the arms or the neck, or you went around to the sides or the stomach, that was totally in play. If the victim were to turn on the post somehow to present the front of their body trying to protect their backside, the front is totally in play as well. Um, This was not intended to be a fast process necessarily, just so you understand. You can see an example of that again in Acts 22, where they're going to use this, this means to question Paul. So my guess is in that scene there, their plan was to, like, what's your name? Paul? Okay. Why was everybody so upset? Oh, I don't think that's the real reason. <clears throat> and pull until they get the answers they want out of you. So it's not intended to be a, a fast form of torture. It's intended to be a brutal form of torture. And since Jesus isn't a citizen, the scourger can do whatever the scourger wants or Up to the point the pilot had allowed. If he died in the process, that wouldn't matter. There was no no ramifications for killing someone and scourging, especially a non citizen. It's just this repeated hit, rip. Hit, rip. Hit, rip. And by the time they're done, I mean, depending on the number of blows and depending on where they targeted those blows, I mean, Jesus would have been in really bad shape. Gibson imagined it looking something like this. Now, this is not the way that history has generally viewed this moment. It views it more as a whipping, but this is not a, rip, a, a whipping. This is a, a tearing of flesh. It would have been a terribly bloody scene. The guys who did this, folks, they were experts at their craft, experts at targeting and knowing how to, to use this, this tool to its full capacity. They could just target the surface skin, just rip all that away if they wanted, or they could keep going over the same spot again and again and again until they got down to bone. You read stories of that in history as well. The amount of blood loss then would depend somewhat on how they targeted, and we just don't know how they targeted Jesus. We don't have any idea. But but even in the best case scenario, folks, I'm just trying to help you picture and understand this, his back is a mess at the end of this moment. Back buttocks, legs, all in play. In fact, <laughs> in fact, think about that in light of the next scene. Just after having said it, after a scourging now, the soldiers take Jesus away to inside the palace. This is the governor's headquarters, and they call together the entire battalion to come be a part of this next moment. They, they clothe him with a purple cloak, and they twist together a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head and just just consider the act of putting the cloak on him after after the scourging. I mean, can you imagine having a fabric and this is not some light fabric like we would think of today. This would be much thicker because of the time period in which it's being woven, but imagine having that pressed on or placed on your back after what we just saw. In addition, they make this crown out of thorns that have been twisted together. And typically the church has pictured this. We as believers have pictured the crown itself as being an act of torture. Um, we don't actually know that because there are examples from antiquity of crowns, laurel crowns being made for victors of different things where they use thorny plants and they put the thorns pointing upward to act as the spikes on the crown. So we don't know if it's designed to hurt him or if it's just designed to look like a crown. It could be either way. So we should probably stop thinking of the crown as being a torture device, regardless, the purpose of these two actions, outside of any other torture that might be intended, it is clearly to mock him. I mean, as you look here at verse 18, this is what you see them doing, right? They begin to salute him, hail, king of the Jews. They strike his head with the reed. They spit on him. They kneel down before him in mocking homage, and we don't know how long this goes on. My guess is, oh, I can't prove it. My guess is They're doing this because they've got a little time lapse between the scourging and when they're actually going to get started on the crucifixion, so what do you do? Well, you might as well have fun with the guy. He has no rights. He's he's not a citizen, so you can do what you want with him. All Mark tells us is that when they had finished mocking him, they strip him of the purple cloak, put his own clothes on him, and they lead him out to crucify him. And again, you read that, and you don't really think carefully about it, but what happens when you put fabric on a cut? It begins to stick. The blood begins to coagulate, so as they're now... Ripping that off, imagine the pain. I mean, just imagine what he is going through right now. Back is lacerated. He's had this cloak on for some length of time. It's ripped off. His own clothes are put back on him. This must have been, and I use this word purposefully, though I will not explain why until next week, this must have been excruciatingly painful. Now, folks, here is the worst part of this right here in a sense, is that all of this is just pregame. I mean, think about that. If if you if I told you that you're going to be tortured, you're going to have something terrible, and I said, we're going to scourge you now that you understand what it is, this would be bad enough, right? I mean, just the thought of having to endure that would be horrific, but this is just pregame. The real event hasn't even started yet. And so... <laughs> We're not even to the crucifixion, and already Jesus has endured a tremendous amount of suffering. He has a tremendous amount more to go, and maybe because we're so familiar with the story, or maybe it's because it's simply, uh, it's not us. We're okay with that. I mean, you might not be okay with it right this moment because you're thinking about it in a little more detail than you have recently, but generally speaking, the church has been okay with thinking about the suffering of Jesus again, either because we got used to it or it wasn't us, we're okay with it. We know it has a good end, particularly for us. We know that after all this is said and done, everything's going to work out fine and Jesus is going to be great. And so we can watch his suffering and, and just be okay with it. And yet, isn't it true that when those tables are reversed and it's us who's suffering, not even in these kinds of brutal physical ways, we're not okay with it at all. I mean, Suffering is a terrible thing, right? That should be avoided at all costs. Yet, as you look through the New Testament, it is clear that the New Testament presents a theology of suffering for us as believers that is built off of the suffering of Jesus. Not just in this one moment, but, but overall. Uh, there's a guy named Ken Williams. He has summarized a New Testament theology of suffering, I thought, in a very helpful way. He did it by taking what he saw were, uh, as myths, modern American myths or modern American Christian myths regarding suffering. He, he, he sort of lists those out on one side of the page, and on the other side he says, but here's the biblical truth compared to that. And I want to just give you five of those myths this morning. He had more than this, but these I thought were particularly helpful considering what we've seen here in Jesus. Myth number one is this, that as Christians, we should not suffer in this life. You guys how many believers genuine, genuinely <laughs> believe that well I'm a Christian I, I shouldn't be suffering in this life. In fact there, that's the like the the foundational tenet of a whole strain of popular theology known as the as the uh, pop, um prosperity gospel. Couldn't get the word out of my mind. But but folks in what universe does it make sense to say well it was okay for Jesus to suffer but I should never? In what universe is that kind of thinking play itself out logically. In fact, the truth is we're called to suffer for Jesus. Here's here's Paul speaking to the Philippians, the the church, the believers in Philippi, the place where he is caned for his casting out a demon from uh, uh, this poor slave girl. He says to them in chapter one, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's been granted to you. Aren't you happy? Aren't you glad that this has been granted to you? He says, uh, excuse me, Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 2, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So I don't understand how the people who think that suffering is not something that should be in the experience or the life of a believer can even make such a comment when our Lord endured it and we're specifically told that this is part of what it means to follow him. You're going to have suffering in your life. Myth number two, suffering means that something is wrong with you. It is an abnormal state, especially for those who are actually trying to live godly lives. So, so this idea is that, well, if you know, you're living a godly life, or at least trying to, then you shouldn't experience that much suffering or any at all, really. I mean, if you're suffering, then clearly there's a problem in your life. It's like suffering is bad karma. You know? it's, you're getting back what you deserve at this point. That's kind of the, the mentality here. Well, I would just ask then, if that's the case, was something wrong in the life of Jesus? Was there something maybe he had done, some secret sin that hadn't been... Told or not acknowledged, and that's why he's enduring all this suffering. Could that perhaps be, that would seem logical according to that view? But of course, we know the answer is no. The biblical truth, again, as I just pointed out, is that suffering is is normal. It is a normal and inevitable part of the Christian life. Listen to Paul's words, Second Timothy chapter three, starting in verse ten. He's speaking to Timothy, and he says, "You, however, Timothy, you followed my teaching." My conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. And we're like, wow, Timothy's great. I'd like to be Paul's disciple. I'd like to have all that stuff said about me until the next two words are thrown out there. My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. Which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul's making the point here that being persecuted, suffering for Jesus is not an indication that you're not living a godly life. It's actually the opposite. It's the indication that you are. You want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus? Expect not that everyone at work is not going to be your best friend. Expect that there are going to be problems. Expect that you're going to have issues in your family and all these other places. Look, if you're not living a godly life, you're going to blend right in and everyone's going to like you just fine. The, the whole myth doesn't even make sense with the reality of what people experience. This is the biblical truth. Myth number three. Spiritual people don't hurt emotionally when they suffer. Spiritual people don't hurt emotionally when they suffer. So at least with these people, they acknowledge that suffering is going to be a part of, of your spiritual life its going to be a part of following Jesus. However, they think that somehow that if you're really a spiritual person, that you'll be able to have a, you know, stiff up a lip, right? You know, stoic, you like my British accent, stoic kind of face and, and approach to suffering so that it won't actually bother you. You'll be, you'll be tough through it all. How, how tough did Jesus look? For those of you who are here with us through the garden, how tough did Jesus look in the garden? Remember, he's trembling with horror at the thought of what was to come, He's begging, pleading to God, please let this cup pass from me. Does that, does that look very stoic to you? Or think of uh, uh, Paul, um, when he writes to this uh, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, for I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. you Paul's emotional. He's He's responding to the things that are going on, and the biblical truth is that spiritual people will feel many emotions as they go through suffering, and that's not sinful. That's not bad. Number four, if God really loves us, he won't let us suffer very much. I mean, his love means that he will protect us to keep terrible trials from entering our lives because he loves us. Let's just follow the logic on that one. So if God really loves us, he'll stop Uh, terrible things from happening. There are many forms of suffering that are terrible things. Therefore, God will not allow believers to to go through a lot of very terrible types of suffering. Um, did Did he not love his son? He lets Jesus go through terrible suffering. Does it mean he doesn't love his son? Is that why he didn't protect Jesus from the really bad suffering? Of course not. He loved his son, but but he didn't prevent his own son from suffering. And folks, if he's not going to prevent his own son from suffering, he's not going to prevent you as well. It's just reality. And, and allowing suffering is not even a, an issue of whether or not he loves us. I, not to, to beat a, a dead horse, so to speak, but it's the passage I referenced two or three weeks ago. Matthew 7 as Jesus is talking to, to the crowd that's listening to him about how they should pray. And remember these words here. He says, of which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Would any of you parents treat your own children that way? Of course not. If, if my kids are hungry and they say, dad, give me bread, give me food, I'm going to give them good food. I'm going to give them bread, not stones. He says, okay, then if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who's in heaven give good gifts to you? And yet, isn't it true, though, that when we get the suffering moments in life, there's death, there's sickness, there's you lose a job, whatever the case may be, instantly you're like, God, why, did you get, why don't you love me? Why did you give me a stone this time? That's the response of our heart every single time. It looks like a stone, and it tastes like a stone, and it feels like a stone, so clearly it must be a stone. Never do we stop and look back to the one who is allowing it and saying, no, no, I see this now through the eyes of faith this is bread. I can't see it right this moment in my my personal life, but I trust you, Father, because I know you would never do this. See, this is the confidence we have in suffering to know that our Father always gives us what's best for us. It's always bread, always. Myth number five, last one, suffering has no redeeming or positive results. See, this is why people want to avoid it, because there's nothing good that comes out of suffering. It's just suffering. You just endure it. You just got to get to the end of it. You know, grin and bear it. Ugh, hated that. I'm glad that's over. There was no redeeming or positive values. Um, that might be true for an unbeliever, but that is not true for the believer, ever. Ever. Suffering, we have a guarantee that suffering always has a redeeming value or a positive result. Uh, We already know that here in Jesus' example in Mark 15, we know that our redemption is being purchased, that positive things are coming here, but it is also true for us as well. Uh, The biblical reality is for believers, there could be one of several purposes of God in our suffering. I will give you just a, a quick sampling. For example, when we suffer, did you know we're actually sharing in Christ's sufferings? We're fulfilling what was lacking in his sufferings. Philippians chapter 3. When we suffer, God uses it to teach us to rely on him, not ourselves. So in suffering, he he draws us back to that point where we are so dependent on him, we have nowhere else to turn. When we suffer, it allows Jesus' life to be revealed in us, 2 Corinthians 4. When we suffer, our faith can be proved genuine and therefore result in praise, 1 Peter 1. When we suffer, it can be used by God to keep us from going astray and help us obey his word. Psalm 119, when we suffer, God may be using it to discipline us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. Hebrews 12, what parent in here allows their child to run out into the street? (laughs) That discipline we teach our children, it's not because we don't love them, it's because we do love them. We're disciplining them for their good that we can share in life with them. In that example, God does it so we can share in his holiness. When we suffer, it may be able to enable us to comfort others with the comfort we've received from God, 2 Corinthians 1. And here's the one that's always true, always. And I'll tell you why it's always true. When we suffer, it is always to prepare us for an eternal glory. And this is Paul in in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm gonna start reading in verse 17. It's just two verses. Paul tells the Corinthians, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're passing away. They're just, they're on the move. The things that are seen are transient. but The things that are unseen are eternal. See, I, I may not always or even ever you, you can go your entire life and sometimes never know the purpose of a time of suffering. I, I, I could always or may not always or even ever know what the purpose of a particular experience of suffering is, but I can know beyond a shadow of doubt that it is never pointless for me as a believer. That God is doing something with it to prepare me for eternal glory beyond all comparison, Paul says, just like he did with the suffering of his son. Folks, our sufferings are transient. They're they're momentary afflictions. You say, you don't know what I'm going through. I don't need to know what you're going through. At best, it's going to be over when you die. You say, that's not very comforting. (laughs) But it's no less true. It is a momentary affliction that God is using to prepare you for an eternal glory. Never-ending glory. Clearly, here in Mark, Jesus is being prepared for eternal glory. Sure, the priests have mocked him as a false messiah, and the the soldiers have mocked him as a false king. They've uh, anointed him with spit. They're crowning him with thorns. They're about to enthrone him on a cross. And every one of us looking at it would admit, this doesn't look very glorious. There's no denying it. It doesn't look very glorious. But as we've seen all along in Mark, God is going to work through even this transient suffering to bring about an eternal glory that we are still enjoying the benefits of today. And in our own lives, we have the same confidence in suffering and should look to the suffering of Jesus as our example. Will you bow your heads with me? Jesus, we're only a little of the way through now what is happening here on this final day of, of your life before the tomb and we've already seen a lot of suffering, and we know that a lot more is to come, but but the spiritual reality here that is underneath all of this is that you are serving right now as an example for us in our own suffering. None of us, none of us in this room have suffered, <laughs> not like this, not even close to this, have suffered because we're Christians. We, we've lived pampered, protected lives, and I don't know if that'll always be true. I, but I know that in all the other sufferings that we endure, just as sinners as living in a fallen world, we don't even handle those well. And so I pray that you will teach us through your suffering here on the cross to, to see it with different eyes, to recognize that it's always bread, that that it serves a purpose, that it's not abnormal, it doesn't, that if we're trying to live godly lives, that it's going to be the reality of our, of our existence until that day comes when we can leave all of these transient things behind and experience eternal glory. You set your eyes on that, and for that you were able to endure the cross, despising the shame, because you knew that a much better future was ahead. And we have that same heart and mind in our own struggles and sufferings. In Jesus' name, amen.